Just two verses Andy has asked me to read this morning, and they're from Genesis 1, and they're based around what he was going to say. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creation that moves along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Amen. I, I was speaking in the church recently, actually, when they had a lot of stuff on the lectern. And when I tried to move it, um, uh, they'd actually uh, tied the pen to the thing. It had a piece of string. You know, it's like when you go in, I go in to see my mother who's in a home and, you know, there's no pen there and they keep a string with the pen so no one takes it away. And I understand that the minister nicks the pens when he comes up to preach, so they put a piece of string on it. Anyway, I want us to look at those uh, two verses in Genesis chapter 1, which, um, in my mind, are profoundly important when we work among those who are broken, those who suffer injustice, those who are not at the centre of our community and of society. And they're profound because I think they give us a framework within which we can understand people and therefore engage. Because it's my proposition that how you view another person will determine how you engage with them, which will ultimately determine what the outcome is. Let me say that again. How you view a person, which of course comes from your theological framework, will determine how you engage with them, how you treat them, which will determine what the outcome is. And Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, which tell us that we're made in the image of God, talk to us about inherent dignity, about capacity, about uniqueness, about wonder, about worth, about value. And the value that God places on all people, everyone, whatever background, Context, culture, tribe, people they come from. Everyone, without exception, is made in God's image. And because of that, has this inherent dignity and capacity and value and worth and uniqueness and as the list goes on. Now... Uh, I want to suggest that that's our framework because I think that often the starting point, and in a sense it comes from the kind of life of middle-class Britain, often our starting point is not Genesis chapter 1. Often our starting point is Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis 3, of course, is about sin. It's the entry of sin into the world. And fundamentally, when I grew up, uh, I was taught that a person needs to understand first and foremost that they're a sinner. 
Because you need to know that you're a sinner in order that you know that you, you are in need of forgiveness, in order that you know that that's actually only can come from Jesus, in order that you can decide to follow him, in order that the rest of life flows from that point. And in many ways, Genesis 3 was the starting point. It was the framework. Sin is the issue we've got to deal with in order that we can live the life that God intended. But you know, when we focus on Genesis chapter 3, we start, and in, in starting there, we focus on people's deficiency. We can communicate, as many people feel, that actually God is against them, not for them. We can make the gospel into the gospel of only being about personal salvation and not being about the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus came to announce. We can end up focusing on people's eternal destiny and not on their present injustices. We can even go to the length of doing things like burning a Koran. Because fundamentally, if sin is our paradigm, it will lead us to a different place than if an understanding that everyone is profoundly and uniquely amazing because they've been made in the image of God. And in fact, Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 are both real, and they're both connected. You see, Genesis 3 is so horrendous only because Genesis 1 is so wonderful. The horrendous nature of sin and, and, the, and what it has done in our world is so awful only because you and I and all people are so wonderful in the eyes of God. And so, Genesis 1 is our starting point. And what's very interesting is when you work among those who are disadvantaged, when you work in communities where people uh, do not have the kind of things that we have, when you work with people who've been thrown out of their homes, who've been trafficked, who've uh, ended up on the streets, you'll discover something very interesting you'll discover that Genesis chapter 3 is not a problem for them. It's not a problem. If I was to uh, bring in here uh, a group of street children, and I was to sit them down on the floor, and I was to say to them, how many of you know that you're a sinner? Well, you, oh, you wouldn't put it like that. But you'd say something like, how many of you know that you've actually done something wrong this last week? You know what would happen? They'd all put up their hands. They'd all put up their hands because they understand it. They know they've messed up. They know things have gone wrong. They know they've contributed to the pain of others just as they have suffered injustice. They know that. But if you were say, to say to them, how many of you know that you are amazing, that you are unique, that you have this incredible value and worth as a person. You know what they'd say? They'd say, no, no, no. That's not me. I, I'm not, I, I don't have any value. I'm not unique. 
because life has treated them in such a way that they've, what has been communicated to them is that lack of value, that lack of, lack of worth, that lack of dignity. But Genesis 1 tells us that everyone, without exception, is a person of value and a person of worth. Now, how does Genesis 1 inform us about how we engage with those who are poor and what poverty is about? Well, let me tell you a story. Um, In the city of Mumbai, where we worked, early one morning, I was out and I was walking along the road with two other people, a girl called Rachel, who was a nurse, and a girl called Shiny, who was a social worker. The three of us were walking along the road, and over the other side of the road, I noticed a woman whose back was to us. And uh, uh, you could tell, I could tell from looking at her that something wasn't quite right. She was squatting, there was a tree, a couple of cars. She's in the city, in a place called Bandra. So I said to Rachel and Shiny, let's cross over and find out what's going on. So we crossed over the road, and as we got closer to this woman, it became evident what the issue was. This woman, who had all her belongings in a plastic bag and was on her own, was giving birth to a baby at the side of the road. And I don't know, you know, when those things happen in your lives, you know, your brain gets a bit scrambled, doesn't it? You know, so what do we do now? You know, what's going on? How how, how do we respond to this? And so I was thinking, Shiny's a social worker. Well, that's not going to be a lot of use. I'm a teacher. That's completely useless. Um, Rachel's a nurse. Ah, That's good news. Now, Rachel wasn't a midwife, but she was a nurse. So I said to Rachel, Rachel, what should we do? And Rachel said, uh, actually later she said to me, she said, as she was walking along, she was thinking, what are we going to do? Ah, Andy, he's had three children. He must have some idea. (laughs) So So I said to Rachel, what do we need? She said, Andy, we need... Uh, a pair of clamps, a razor, some gloves, and a towel. I said, that's my job. So I ran as fast as I could around the corner, because I knew where the nearest hospital was, to the hospital, which was about five, six, seven minutes uh, running time. Walked into the front, ran into the front door. And in this kind of context, you know, uh, people don't expect people to be running in asking for clamps and razors and towels and this kind of thing, you know. But that's the first problem. The second problem is you'll never get anything out of people in that context unless you sign lots of forms, you know. Well, anyway, to cut a long story short, they said, you know, bring her here. We said, you can't bring her here. She's having the baby. It's already out. You know, we could see the head popping out already. So uh, I said, can I have these things? And they said, well, you have to see so-and-so. And you have to see so-and-so. I went up the chain, finally signed for these things. They gave them to me. I ran back. So probably about 15 minutes. It, it seemed like half an hour. Went back, Rachel was holding the baby. So we clamped the cord, cut, flagged down a rickshaw, got her in it, got to the hospital. And she survived, and the baby survived. And I contrast that experience with, with the experience of the birth of my three children. When our oldest, Claire, uh, was born, we were in the north of India, and uh, she was born in a hospital in a hospital, uh, in a room. Uh, It was clean and tidy. Uh, We uh, had 
Uh, lots of people who did lots of things for us when she was born. Uh, they took pity on us and cooked us meals because they thought I may not be the best cook in the world. People covered our jobs. Uh, people would come round and help us in a whole range of ways uh, uh, to, to get us through that, that, that time and to share in the joy. In fact, we were in this community and I would often hold Claire in my arms and the kids in the community, in the school community, would come up and they'd they'd say things like, isn't she cute? Isn't she lovely? Actually, what they do is they come up and they'd look at me and then they'd look at Claire <laughs> and then they'd say, isn't she cute? What they meant was, how did someone as ugly as you manage to produce something <laughs> as, as nice as that? But I contrast those events, the birth of Claire with the birth of this baby at the side of the road. And the most profound thing about that was not the fact that one was born in the dirt and the dust and one was born in a hospital. It wasn't the fact that this woman had nothing and we had a home. The most profound thing about that was that while Claire was born in the context of a loving community where people cared for her from the day she was born, this, this baby was born to a woman who had no one. No friends, no family, no community. In the two days that she was in the hospital, nobody came to visit her. She had no one. She was on her own. Not just homeless, but friendless. Nobody. She had no one in the world. And actually, after two days, she dismissed herself and walked out of the hospital, and we were left to care for the baby. You see, Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26 and 27, it changes from what has gone before. If you read the rest of chapter 1, you'll see that what happens is God, in creation, speaks things into being. Let it be, and it was. Let it be, and it was. Let it be, and it was. But in verse 26, it changes. And God has this conversation amongst himself. For it says, let us make humankind in our image. Father, Son, and Spirit having a conversation. And fundamentally, being made in God's image is about many things, but one of the key things is that all of us have been made for relationship. We've been made to live in community. We've been made for each other. In fact, you cannot be human and be out of relationship. We need relationships to be human. We discover who we are in the way that we relate to each other. We're, that's reflected back to us. And so people who develop you know, into normal human beings do so because they have a number of people who are able to reflect back to them who they are and we learn who we are. If you take a baby and you give a baby all the physical things that it needs, but you don't give it human contact, that baby will not survive. We need each other. We need relationship. It's fundamental to who we are. It is written onto our DNA. Now, my son, uh, who's just 18, 
a couple of weeks ago, he passed his driving test. And uh, he texted us. And he, he, his text uh, after he passed was this. It was Matheson, that's our surname, Matheson children, uh, first time pass rate equals 100%, because his two sisters passed first time. And, uh, and what, he meant, what he meant by that was um, uh, our, the, us three kids all passed first time. And you and mum, between you, took it six times. <laughs> but actually, why was he texting us after passing his driving test? He was texting us because the joy comes not from success, not from passing a test or passing an exam or getting engaged or whatever it might be. The joy comes, the fulfillment comes from sharing that with other people. That's why you text people when you got some good news. That's why you phone them up. That's why you want to see people quickly. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if one of you got engaged to be married right now. And what we did is we said, there's a room behind there, and you're going to be shut in there for three days. You're not going to be able to see anybody for three days. Can you imagine the anguish that that person would go, to, go through? Because actually we've been made to share good news. We need other people when things go well for us. And we need people when things don't go well. And so if we fundamentally have been made for relationship, then poverty primarily is a relational thing. Now, I know that most people define poverty in economic terms. You know, less than one dollar a day or whatever it is. But fundamentally, poverty is a, not about economics, though it has an economic dimension. Poverty is about relationship. It's about those who are excluded, those who are marginalized, those who are ostracized, those who are thrown out of community, those who don't have relationships that work for them. And our engagement is to relate, is to be a human being to another human being made in God's image. And, you know, it makes sense when it comes to the New Testament because, you know, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, he said, the Spirit is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who did Jesus go and preach to? Who did Jesus spend his time with? Well, it was lepers and it was tax collectors and it was sinners and it was prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors. These are the people Jesus spent his time with. And these people weren't necessarily economically poor, but they were the people who'd been thrown out. They'd been the people who'd been pushed to the edges of the society. And as Jesus engages with them, he says, now, now, through me, you can come back in. You're welcome back into the community and into society. In Mark 5, there's an incident, isn't there, when Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house, and a woman comes up from behind and touches Jesus' cloak. And we're not told why, but Jesus wants to know who it is. And the disciples say, Jesus, don't be silly. <laughs> Everyone's touching you. You know? Always see the crowds. Everyone's touching everyone. You know? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Someone has touched me for a specific purpose. And then we find that this woman has been bleeding. She's, she's had a period for 12 years. 
And of course, because of that, she couldn't worship and she couldn't commune with others. She was ostracized. And Jesus says, now, now, from this point onwards, you're back in, you're welcome, you're in the community. You can play your part. You can find your part in the community. So, Genesis 1 tells us that poverty is about relationship, and it tells us that actually, as we see people in God's image, we see them as those that we relate to as fellow human beings. But Genesis 1 also tells us that, uh, that uh, we are whole people. We are integrated as people. You know, the use of language is very important because language reflects what we believe. And in the church, we've, we've created some language that doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't reflect the truth, I believe, of how God sees people and sees us. And we talk about souls to be saved. Actually, it's not about souls to be saved. Salvation is for the whole person. It's for, it's for the whole of you. It's not just about your soul. It's about you. And it's not just about the future. It's about the present. It's about now. It's about today. And you know, we've been made as whole people. So even though we divide people up when we study them, you know, and the doctor studies the body and the educationalist studies the mind and the vicar studies the soul bit. Actually, when you meet people, you've got to put them back together because we are whole people. Every part of our life relates to every other part of our life. You know, if you are ill, it impacts your work. And if things are going badly at work, it impacts your home life. And if your relationship with God is a bit out of order, it impacts you in every other area. Because you're an integrated human being. It's how you've been made. It's how I've been made. And actually, if we separate the bits off, we become sick, we become ill. You know, so um, if I come home from a bad day at work, things have gone wrong, and I pick one of those petty arguments with my wife, it's a good thing. No, I don't mean it's a good thing. I mean, it's a good sign. It's a sign that I'm integrated. It's a sign that I can't compartmentalize my life because I am an integrated whole. And God's concern for me is as an integrated whole. And fundamentally, when it comes to an understanding of what holistic ministry or holistic mission is about, it comes from Genesis 1. It shouldn't be about a debate about how much evangelism, how much social action we do. That's a never-ending, you won't get anywhere with that debate. But if you say, actually, holistic engagement is because I see everyone as a whole person and I treat them as such, then we have holism, holistic ministry. Salvation is for the whole person. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? He's, uh, he's up a tree, and Jesus comes up to him, says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. Doesn't sound very profound to us, but in that context and culture, going to a person's house was a sign of honor. And Jesus goes to his house. Nothing else is exchanged. No other conversation is recorded. It may have happened. But all we're told is the response to Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house is Zacchaeus decides 
he's, he's going to pay back people. He's, he's ripped off. And he's going to sell things. And he's going to give it to the poor. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Now, what does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean, okay, Zacchaeus, when you die, you're now going to heaven? No, Jesus doesn't mean that. Jesus means, from today, from this moment, Zacchaeus, your life has changed. Through me, you now understand God's purpose for you to live in right relationship with your neighbours and your community and with me. Salvation has come to this house. It, didn't, it wasn't simply about Zacchaeus' soul. It was about every part of him. And it was about his life then, not just about his future. Let me finish with one story. We, uh, about uh, 15... 14 years ago, um, started to work uh, with girls who had been trafficked into prostitution. Um, I don't know whether you realize that um, trafficking, human trafficking is now the second largest earner um, of crime, of money by criminals. First is arms, second is humans, beyond that of drugs. It's taken over. So some drug smugglers, dealers, are now turning to smuggling people because it's more lucrative. And, uh, uh, I mean, in Mumbai, where we, where we lived, uh, no one knows the statistics. I mean, the problem is enormous, absolutely enormous, of people who are either lured or taken or in some cases sold by their family into uh, prostitution. And uh, we began a, a day centre. We actually hired a room in the brothel that we used as a centre for girls to be able to come. And our approach was to relate to be a human being in relationship to another human being, not to condemn, not to force, not to drive an agenda, but to work with these girls so that they could understand that there is a God in heaven who is on their side, who sees their value, their worth, and their dignity. And the first girl who decided, and there's probably around 20 to 25 of these girls make the choice to leave the brothels each year. But the first girl was a girl called Zeba. She was from a Muslim background. She grew up in Calcutta. She had uh, a uh, family that, where her father had several wives and her mother was not one of those who was in favour. She wasn't looked after properly. She was sent to live with her sister at one point. One day at a festival, uh, someone came along and offered her some training in a skill. She didn't know, but that woman was a trafficker. She brought her to Mumbai. Uh, she sold her uh, into the brothels. And for six, seven, eight years, she worked 
customers, six customers a minimum every night, night after night, year after year. She became HIV positive. And uh, as our team uh, grew to know her and began to relate to her, she began to see that there could be an alternative for her. And eventually, after a, a quite a period, she made that decision to leave. And a lot have followed after her. And of course, when they leave the brothels, uh, life isn't easy. In fact, in her case, um, we placed her in a church, in a family, in a church. And that family couldn't take it. They, they couldn't take it. And she was rejected again. But it wasn't uh, the end. She was able to overcome that. And she went through a rehab process and uh, was eventually um, able to uh, see her way through to live as she does today on staff with us, helping other girls out of that predicament. But for Zeba, as with many of the others, the fundamental truth that they need to understand is not Genesis 3. Important as that is, real as that is, it is the profound knowledge that God is completely, utterly, and profoundly for them and wants them to understand their value, their worth, and their dignity. Amen.